It's soups, part two, today. We've covered the easy part, and now we get to the, well, easier part. It could be the harder part, depending on how rigidly you want to follow the text, and that's part of what will be revealed. What happens when you change the procedure? The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 197. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. It's a bit of a shorter episode today, folks. It's hot. This is part two of the soups portion of Escoffier's La Guide Culinaire. The first portion seemed pretty simple with its seemingly consistent procedures for velouté and bechamel cream sauces of soups, each almost copying the other with roux and aromatics and garniture. This episode gets out of the predictable and formulaic mostly procedure for making cream soups and into the specialty soup of which there is literally no end. Anyone with a liquid, a stove, and a garnish can make a soup. Now, I've teased that the main point today was the manager who was so, so vexed by my use of the term garber on the menu for a soup. Garber means soup, he demanded, so it's like saying soup, soup. Well, I don't care. The key difference in a garber are the soups are often, not always, pureed and the puree contents spread on a crouton. I'll get to that. And then puree is, and then the puree-covered croutons are placed in a serving dish sprinkled with cheese, gratinade, and served with the finished soup in a separate bowl. There are some variations on that, but the garber is almost always a puree of a thing, that thick puree spread on a crouton and browned in a broiler and served alongside the soup in a bowl, which uh, the cooked thing was in, and now that's the soup and the puree is on the crouton. So, our crouton. This is not the Pepperidge Farm salad croutons, as Gavier means. These croutons are cut rounds, maybe slightly on a diagonal, of French bread, which has been cooked on the stovetop in whole butter, so both sides are nicely toasted and brown, and the bread is crisp throughout. It's similar to what you would find as the vehicle for a bruschetta. Now, as a feasible thing to serve, potage garber is not a feasible thing to serve, at least not in most restaurants. Since we know there is reason to alter or change service or recipes as needs be, the addition of small croutons on type might be an approved alteration. There are some main themes 
for vegetables, for potage garbers, those being root vegetables, usually some variation of turnips, leeks, onions, carrots, parsley root, potatoes, and the above ground things of celery, fennel, cabbage, or chard. Now, this is not the end of the list. It is the beginning. If it's fresh, use it. Not all the soups are finished with cream or butter, but most do have cheese on top of the puree portion on the crouton because it gratinates nice and pretty. A reasonable presentation would be keep the puree in the soup, adjust the consistency with more broth or cream, or both, enrich it with a knob of butter, and serve with those cheese-covered croutons. The rest of the soup section includes soups from various countries, perhaps uh, some of them he terms international, such as chowder and potage au gumbo or potage okra. Now, we'll see how a cultural adaptation to a local soup overrides the book version. Now, I just realized I didn't give you a procedure. This is where there is some standard familiarity with process and procedure. Uh, the basic Garber method, assuming it is going to be pureed, and nearly all of them are, is to sweat your veggies. Now, this is an important point for knife skills. You don't have to make everything brunoise, and this is where the, the terminology gets a little bit wonky. Brunoise is a cube of one-eighth by one-eighth by one-eighth, though it's a cube, uh, of the vegetable. It is exceptionally difficult to do, to get them all right, because one deviation stands out. But cutting all the vegetables at approximately the same size helps ensure even cooking so that they're all done about the same time. An onion cooks faster than a carrot no matter how thinly it's sliced, that's just how that goes. Parsnips too. But your vegetables, let's say you're doing it with parsnips and leeks and onions, everything's cut thin, you sweat that all in butter, generally we're going to go with no color. It means don't let it brown, cook it till it's nice and soft and add in the, the, the term as coffee uses is moisten well <laughs> aside from that triggering a bunch of listeners right now um, what that means is just add enough liquid to the thing to help cook the veggies and then put some more liquid in and to cook that for about 10 or 15 minutes but because we're going to puree it there's no this we're going to this is a weird thing so you can or cannot the procedure for most of them is to puree it. What that means back then is there's this, well, it's hard to imagine what it, think of a, not your pasta uh, colander, but a strainer uh, made of wire screen. It looks like a screen in, in some kind of a container. And you're using, uh, uh, bakers have a, um, a, a bowl scraper. It's just like, handheld spatula basically and so you're taking these are you lifting the veggies out or you're straining them out saving the juice from your soup and you're taking these cooked veggies and you're pushing them 
through this screen to help make them into puree. Now, nowadays, we would probably use a blender or a food processor, but they didn't have that. Um, that puree, season it, that's going to go on your crouton. The juice that's left over is your soup base that's going to get finished. Finished means, remember, uh, I think we talked about this in the last soup one. Finished means add the things at the last minute that it needs. So uh, cream and or broth probably won't need broth because it's if you haven't returned the puree back to the soup, then the soup part should be pretty thin. Uh, uh, a little bit of butter, maybe they call it mounted with butter. A knob of butter is the is a cooking phrase, um, and let that so you emulsify that in. Really enriches uh, the soup and it actually helps bring out some flavor. Uh, so despite all of the names, potage garber crisi, potage garber dauphinoise, potage garber à l'oignon. There's a basic procedure that's going to change thing to thing, but fundamentally you're sautéing, you're sweating, not sautéing, no color, sweating the vegetables of your choice, because we're not going to worry about the names of the thing. You can call it Nancy if you want to. Just enough to cook them, have some broth left over, puree it, and this is where we're going to go. I'm going to do croutons first, and then we'll get into whether or not you have to put the puree on the crouton. So I did mention that those international soups, the rest of this section is just a bunch of disparate soups, uh, the potage au gumbo, the potage au okra. Um, I'm, going to read a I'm going to read a few of these recipes just because I think they're, they're kind of interesting. Um, and also I want, to, I want to make sure to do the potage okra, because I, I, there's a interesting commentary to me, that there's interesting commentary there. So, soup 859 is soup aigo a la menagere, and yeah, I butchered the snot out of that. Um, it's a Provençal soup, and reads mostly as so. Cook four ounces of shredded white of leek, and two ounces finely sliced onion until golden brown in a little olive oil. This is the Provencal version, not the classical French version. So that's why they get in color. Add three ounces of flesh only of tomato, four crushed cloves of garlic, a piece of fennel, a bouquet garni, a small piece of dried orange peel, a pinch of powdered saffron, one pound sliced potatoes, half an ounce of salt, a pinch of pepper, and a cup and a half of water. Bring to a boil and allow to cook rapidly for 15 minutes. Poach some eggs in the soup, allowing one per person. Remove the bouquet carne and orange peel. Place thick slices of French bread in a deep, sorry, in a dish and soak it with some of the liquid of the soup. Place the potatoes in a separate dish and arrange the eggs on top and sprinkle with chopped parsley. Serve the remainder of the soup separately. Parenthetically, this is the Provencal housewives method. <laughs> okay. Um, that's kind of tough to envision. Now, this is an interesting thing. Place the poached eggs on top. On top of what? 
doesn't say. So as I read this, thick slices of French bread in a dish and soak it with some of the liquid of the soup. Place the potatoes in a separate dish and arrange the eggs on top and sprinkle. The way the eggs on top follows the potatoes it seems to mean put the eggs on top of the potatoes. Now, how you do it at home, if you make this, if you, and poaching the eggs in the soup is a good idea. It keeps the flavor. But it's just an interesting, and that's why I read it. One, because there is at least two obvious interpretations, so both could be right. And the fact that he calls out this is the Provencal housewife's method compared to, say, you know, the, the chef at the Ritz-Carlton's method. All right, so that's just interesting. Uh, so the other, the other two, the next one is 871. And remember, Scoffier lists all of his recipes in order. So 871 is potage clam chowder. Say chowder! So he writes, quote, Clams are a shellfish of the same family as the cockle. Open the clams, taking care to reserve their juice, which is inside, and for one liter or one and three quarter pints of clams, including the juice. Chop six and a half ounces of pork fat and melt in a heavy pan. Add three and a half ounces coarsely chopped onion and one ounce of rough chopped parsley and cook in the fat without coloring. Add 11 ounces of chopped flesh only of tomato. Yeah, you heard that right. The clams and their juice. Potatoes cut into medium dice, 11 ounces and two and a quarter cups of water, uh, a little bit of salt, bearing in mind the clams will be salty, and some pepper. Bring to a boil and cook for 20 minutes. Add a small spoonful of fresh leaves of thyme and sufficient crushed rusks, cream cracker biscuits, or dried soup sippets to lightly thicken the soup. Cook for a further five minutes and serve as is. Note, sometimes the clams are chopped before using, but the rest of the preparation is always the same. And I was referring there to um, canned clams. So, this is a fun soup to make for at least two reasons. One, it, it doesn't follow any of the classic expected chowder procedures, um, which for... Contemporary Americans is either have the roux or make the roux, and then you're sweating your onions and garlic. Um, you could use celery, you could use fennel, you could use parsnips, you could use leeks, you could use lots of vegetables in there. Probably wouldn't add carrots, although there's no reason not to add carrots. Um, if you want to have a white soup, I wouldn't add carrots to that. The thing that stands out is interesting in this intentional version of something like a New England clam chowder is adding tomatoes. <laughs> I love that part. That's just, he's just a no, but he's a troll 100 year, 150 years ahead of his time. Because uh, you're going to get, well, feedback. You're going to get an opinion that tomatoes don't belong in New England clam chowder as if somehow God himself said, don't do that. Well, that's not true, but... Boy, would it be fun to find out who your friends really are. The other thing that's interesting is, is that thickening at the end part, which actually, from a managing consistency standpoint, 
makes a lot of sense. The one thing no cook can control is how much water is in the potatoes. If there's a lot, the soup will be thin because the potato will let go of its water as the potato starch breaks down and absorbs back all the water in there. If the potato is light on water, it has more starch, so the soup will be thin or thick, depending on the thing no cook can control. So thickening at the end makes a lot of sense. I just think it's funny, partly the change of things. And also, so this is an introduction to the next one, which is gumbo. So here is a very talented cook writing about, well, at the time it probably wasn't the big deal it is now. But it's, so you take it out of time and it looks very, very out of place. It doesn't make any sense. It looks like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, let's move on to... Recipe, what did I put it, 890 for potage okra or potage au gumbo. Now, gumbos means okra, uh, at least in French, I think in at least one African language. So he writes, cook two ounces of chopped onions in two ounces of butter without color and add four and a half ounces of streaky bacon or lean raw ham cut into small dice. Cook together for a few minutes to lightly color, then add one pound, two ounces raw chicken flesh, cut in dice, and cook to set and lightly color it, stirring frequently. Moisten with nine cups chicken bouillon, bring to a boil, and allow to cook very gently for 25 minutes without covering with a lid. Complete the soup with seven ounces okras, Cut in slices and nine ounces roughly chopped flesh only of tomato. Continue to cook very gently for another 25 minutes. Skim off the fat. Check the seasoning and flavor according to taste. With a few drops of Worcestershire sauce, pour into a tureen and add two to three tablespoons plain boiled rice. Now, perhaps the first observation is what's missing. That nearly black roux that today makes gumbo gumbo. Without that flavor, it might be a fine soap, but down Nolan's way, take gumbo share. This kind of contradiction is well noticed by cooks who read this book. Which version is right? The version from the people who have been making it for decades, or the version from the French guy who wrote it down in a book? This is not to diminish Escoffier's contribution, but to notice that the deference to authority from a person not in the place discounts the contribution from the people in the place. The two are not the same thing, except that there is a food involved. Escoffier's contribution to refining and revising the cooking profession and cooking service is unparalleled. It still is in effect today, even at your local chain luncheon diner. He can be granted a pass on missing on gumbo, but it does bring up good food for thought. Even among Cajuns and Kunas traditions, and they are not exactly the same, or the Appalachian Mountain cooking style, or Southwestern in Arizona and New Mexico, how much can anyone alter the procedures and still stay in the boundaries of the thing. Can you put jalapenos in chow chow? 
I don't know. Why not is my answer. If the cook likes it, and his audience likes it, where's the issue? This isn't meant to be a social criticism, social criticism of who owns food or flavor, but to note that if you like spicy Pennsylvania Dutch diced pickles, then make them. I don't care for the term fusion cuisine. Fusion is the thing hydrogen atoms do inside of a bomb. If you want to put something seemingly disparate together and it works for you, then that's a wonderful thing. You should keep doing that and invent more new ways to push flavor boundaries. I myself am a bit of a stick in the mud. I prefer the old tried and true first, then determine how it can be altered. To recap soups, roux is the classical French preferred thickening agent. Arrowroot is better because it thickens faster and preserves a fresher flavor profile. One is not wrong and one is not right. Most times, the vegetables are sweated in whole butter, extra virgin olive oil, yes, for otherwise, to extract the flavor and some of the liquid and then the remaining steps are performed. In some cases, to preserve the shape of the vegetable, if it's not going to be pureed, it is removed from the pan then added near the end to get it hot again and to keep its shape, and the addition of it in the first place was to put its flavor at the very foundation of the soup. The darker the roux, the darker the color of the finished soup, and the deeper and more complex the flavor of that finished soup. You cannot get that from arrowroot. Sorghum is the best I've tried so far for a gluten-free thickener in a roux. It colors almost the same as wheat, and it's pretty darn close to one-to-one -one for flour. Even Escoffier's recipes are guides. The ratio of stuff to liquid is a very good place to start, but add what you want. There are as many ways to make minestrone or malagatoni or kakaliki soup as there are cooks to make it, even chowder. If it has to have bacon and potatoes in time for you, that's fine. Drive them crazy and make New England clam chowder and add tomatoes just because. Cook well and cook with love. That's really the ingredient that matters. And yes, yes, the food knows. Next time it will be hors d'oeuvres, but... It will not come with a spell test. All right, folks, that's going to do it. If the cook-in-the-usual-manner style of procedure exasperates you, pick up my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort. The procedures are plain, and as you follow the instructions of see or smell or hear to know when to do the next thing, you are also building your cooking skills. The stove and the pan and the veggies can't tell time. So procedures that read saute for five minutes are useless. Pick up Cooking for Comfort with my link on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 197. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here.
and I appreciate the email show suggestions. And thank you to my Patreon supporters. I appreciate your support as well. You can become a Patreon supporter at culinarylibertarian.com slash support. Have a good week, stay cool, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.